What's going on, everybody? This is Jerome Moore, host and creator of Deep Disc Conversations. And firstly, I want to say thank you for all love and support, and thank you for exploring the perspectives of social change with me on this platform. I want to encourage you all to like, subscribe, and follow us on YouTube and on your favorite podcast listening platform, and make sure you give us a five-star rating if you're loving the Deep Disc Conversations. I appreciate all of the support again. I hope you all enjoy this episode. This is Deep Dish, right? Yeah, well, let's get deep. So, so I'm, I'm going deep on both sides. Steve, how you doing? Welcome to the platform. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Nah, thanks for being here. I'm really excited to talk about uh, science in the, in the Adventure Science Center. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just you, you know, being the CEO and president of the Adventure Science Center here in Nashville and the history of that and what you all have going on and things yeah. like that. But um, I like to start off by talking about a little bit about you. Sure. Um, originally from Texas. Sort of, sort yeah. Of. I was born in London, actually. Oh, okay. And then I was the the child of two university professors. Oh, okay. So we moved a little bit with their work. I moved to Minneapolis and spent the first few years of my life in Minneapolis. And then when we got tired of shoveling snow every winter <laughs> and got, you know, over the cold, then then we relocated to Texas. And Texas. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I always say that I grew up in Austin. And, yeah. Um, that's where I feel like I grew up anyway. I've just seen that... Um, <laughs> that Austin and Nashville had the biggest rent increase in the nation. Yeah. It's not surprising. You know, I think both are obviously very, very um, strong markets, and mm -hmm. both are very popular places for folks to go, and especially right. now that the economy's shifting dramatically. People look to places like Texas and Tennessee as right. at least economically a little bit easier than some of the coastal places right. or some of the larger cities, Chicago and so forth. At so, the moment. Yeah, at the moment. I don't know. <laughs> I, I keep telling folks that I feel like that <clears throat> that price differential is is starting to even out quite yeah. a bit, especially in terms of housing. It's it's not as big of an advantage anymore here. Yeah. Um, but we still seem to be attracting a, a ton of people. And, yeah. um, you know, for better or for worse, I think it's pretty exciting to be in Nashville as it's growing this quickly. Having grown up in Austin and seen, you know, the not the end result, because obviously Austin's still growing, but seeing where Austin is now, I mm -hmm. think there's a lot that Nashville can do and learn from a community like that that, yeah. uh, you know, try to retain a lot of its original identity, but right. then see if it can scale to a big city while preserving a little bit of what made Austin special, which was just a very, you know, very community-oriented space. Right. You know, people felt like you could get to know everybody, get to know the city really well, and, right. and you could. And I think they're trying to keep that, and I think that's one of the things that Nashville's trying to trying figure to, out. Yeah, too. trying to figure out, yeah. yeah. I, hopefully, hopefully we figure it out. I hope so. Um, I want to also uh, congratulate you, too. Um, I just came across this the other day, um, the Leadership Nashville class of 2023. Yeah. And so you you know made it one of the participants in, in 2023, so congratulations. I think I read it was like 99 applicants, and they had to choose like 44 and yeah i think you know. actually i think they said they had over 200 applicants oh, not that oh wow it matters but um, <laughs> oh it that makes it uh, <laughs> but yeah being part of that program is, yeah. is something that i've wanted to do for a few years and obviously the the pandemic sidetracked a little bit of mm -hmm. my ability to do that but yeah. also the, the program um and so I'm, I'm just glad that I've been selected for it. Yeah, no, I'm very okay. honored to be a part of that. Yeah, no, it's, it's got a, a great legacy yeah, here. So. And, and I was looking at the <clears throat> um, the other participants. I said, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of, uh, I know, when I'm in there, I'm like, hmm, yeah. somehow they chose me yeah. in that group. Right, but, uh, I, I said, oh, wow. Yeah, I will, okay. I will be listening to a lot of what happens in that space. So. Yeah, no, no. And I, and I just randomly was like, I think it was the, 
National Business Journal. I was looking. I was like, oh, what is this? Mm-hmm. And I just happened to go through it and see your name. I was like, yeah. oh, well, I got to make sure I congratulate you. Yeah, well, thanks. I appreciate in. it. No, I, no. I'm, I'm very honored and yeah. excited to be a participant. And um, so I want to get into um, how you got into science. Yeah, I don't know if many people know this, but I remember you had telling me, like, you you started off as a school teacher. I did. Um, I did, yeah. Biology, chemistry, psychology. Bio- yeah, biology and physics, physics and anatomy and physiology okay, were see. really the topics that I focused on. <laughs> Although originally when I started, I was also teaching earth science, um, which was kind of unfamiliar to me. But, mm-hmm. you know, you just wrap your head around it as quickly as you can and try to make it something that kids can get interested in. So when I started teaching, I was teaching middle school and then eventually wound up teaching high school okay. over the course of that, the 10-year career that I had in the classroom. And I loved it. It was, it was a really, really wonderful 10 years for me. Um, loved connecting with the kids, loved imparting some understanding of the world, but more mm-hmm. importantly, trying to get them to a point where they didn't need me anymore, All right. where they were curious and they were figuring out how to learn for themselves. And All then right. you just kind of watch them take off. And that's, that's pretty exciting. I got two questions for you around that. All right. The first one is how did how did you get in? Did you did you always want to be a teacher? Is that something? How did you get into? I know you have two parents that was professors, yeah, respected yeah. teachers themselves. <laughs> yeah. So how did like how did that? Well, so funnily enough, you know the the irony of having two parents that were teachers. Mom eventually shifted away from sort of teaching, and she was just more of a. Uh, not just, but she she became more focused on software engineering and so forth. So oh, she wow. she went that route, and then Dad stayed in teaching, in the universities, and um, he was actually cautioning me against going into teaching. He said, "Don't do it because <laughs> you'll never make enough money and so forth." And at the time, I thought, "Well, that's that's not what mattered to me. I wanted right. to do something that I was passionate about. I wanted to do right. something that I thought would make a difference and maybe leave the world a little bit of a better place than how I found it." So. No, I didn't always want to go into teaching. When I was a little kid, I wanted to be a professional soccer player. Okay. Uh, and then realized that wasn't going to happen. Well, you was right uh, in what you born in one of the meccas, London. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and soccer was a big part of my, my existence all the way through college and mm-hmm. so forth. So it was, it was definitely a big part of my life. But, you know, as I, as I got a little bit older, I got exposed particularly to two really great teachers. Um, Midge Kimball, Mrs. Kimball, when I was in fifth grade, she was... A tremendously powerful influence for me. Um, just a, a great teacher, great person all around, and really for me inspired that love of science when mm-hmm. I was young. Um, and and then I got a continuation of that in high school with my freshman year biology teacher, um, Fred Breckwald. Okay. And he was the one that really got me focused on biology and and potentially going into medical school uh, as something that I was passionate about. So when I went to college, I actually was was um, sort of going in that, that pre-med track and went mm-hmm. to a school that was pretty well known for that and um, and then realized pretty quickly I didn't I didn't have what it took to <laughs> like I, I wasn't gonna be able to do it right first of all I like sleep um, and and you know medical school and doctors in general they're they're just made of a different constitution yeah not only in terms of their brilliance and so forth but also just their ability to stay motivated, right. even when they're exhausted. Discipline. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, the discipline yeah. behind yeah. it is, is truly extraordinary. So um, as I was getting through college, I, I thought, well, you know, teaching is another good way to make an impact and, and change communities and so forth. And mm-hmm. so um, I, I got my first taste of teaching when I was in college. I got to teach one of my own 
classes that I was participating in. It was evolutionary biology. Okay. And, um, and I loved it. It terrified me because right. I did not like public speaking. <laughs> and to some extent, you know, it's, it's still something that I have to really work around. Right. But, uh, but I loved the interaction that I had with my classmates and right. helping them learn something that it became um, really something that I wanted to spend more time doing. And so right. when I got out of college, I started looking around for really pretty much any job, as many people graduating college will do. Uh, and, uh, and, and it was a school that wound up calling me uh, that I had applied to. They had a teacher that um, had to retire and they asked me if I would be interested. And so I went and interviewed and next thing you know, I was standing in front of a bunch of seventh and eighth grade kids for 10 years. Pretending like I knew what I was doing <laughs> uh, and, and learned quickly, just, just enough to stay ahead of them, I guess, a little bit. And then, you know, kind of found my groove year two, year right. three, and then, you know, kept going for a little while. And then at the end of 10 years, I thought, all right, time to do something different. Didn't know what it was. So then I uh, left teaching, just traveled for about a couple of years. Oh, wow. And then uh, got a call from a science museum in Dallas. It was actually a parent of a former student of mine who was on the board of that science museum and they were hiring somebody for education and right. he thought maybe there would be a good fit there and so that's how I wound up in science museums. Yeah. So I want to pivot back a little bit to, to school yeah. on my second question. My school or the school I taught? Uh, school in general. Okay. Like just yeah. School in general. Um, middle school, elementary. Mm -hmm. We just had a mass shooting in Texas. Yep. Um, as a former teacher, um, did you ever think, did that ever cross your mind that like anything like that even like think about even occurring, you know, as a teacher and like being even prepared to train? I remember when I was in school, you know, we would, we would, uh, you know, do tornado drills. We have drills of like, um, like with somebody was just unexpectedly in the hallway, like not supposed to be on there. It was like a, like a lockdown. Yeah. Uh, but never a threat of like a weapon or a shooting happening, right. you know. Um, they, they they didn't even talk to us about anything like right. that, right? Right. And so at like so, what are your thoughts on those type of things? You know, that have happened, you know, over the years yeah. in schools as a former teacher. How, how much time do we have here? Yeah, we got to get much time as you uh, need. I, I will say that. Um, no, it never really entered our mind, right. you know. Uh, you, it, you just can't go into the classroom continually focused on that, at least not top of mind. Right. Maybe it's back somewhere right. in, in your training or in your preparation for being a teacher or, you know, being around kids. Um, but honestly, it's just, it's extraordinarily unfortunate that right. teachers have to even think about it or that we have to have right. drills to, to right. train kids, to train teachers how to deal with something like that. It, right. it just, it, it should not exist. It shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be part of the students' realities. Right. You know, to some extent, adults, just by virtue of being older, by virtue of having more life experience, mm -hmm. you know, can, can perhaps compartmentalize some of that thinking a little bit more to where it doesn't create overwhelming anxiety in mm -hmm. them on a day-to-day -day basis. But how do you, how do you communicate to a three and four four-year-old child or a third or fourth grade child even that this is a possibility right there are people out there that want to do harm to you and they may find a way to do that here in this space right how do you communicate that to them without them 
absorbing that right. and being impacted by that permanently and and that being part of their thinking in that environment right. to the point where it gets in the way of their education or gets in the mm -hmm. way of their social emotional well-being i don't know how you do that um, it's we shouldn't be having these conversations honestly it, it's a shame that we have to right. and we do have to but we shouldn't be having these conversations there there should be no threat to the students from that perspective right. inside that room. Well, I'm, and I'm, I wanna throw this back at you. As a leader, CEO and president of a whole facility, a team, mm -hmm. a staff. Um, public space. Public space. Public space yep. people are coming and going. Has that been on your mind now that the Venture Science Center Right, you know, in Buffalo is a grocery store. Right, right. Uh, that a public space could be a target for domestic terrorism. Absolutely. Um, yep. And has has that some been something y'all thought about before? Or is this is something new, or is it like where you are on, on things like that? Sadly, it's not new. You know, mm. it's something that we've had to think about for years. Okay. Um, when when I first arrived in Nashville in two thousand and seventeen. We didn't really have a, a security standpoint, so we very quickly put a security guard there. And um, we've made a number of changes to the way that we train our staff to you know, understand the building and understand what can happen mm -hmm. in some of these public spaces. Uh, but then also, we've gone through uh, some, some changes to our physical building as a means of trying to keep staff safer right. and keeping the public safer in, right. in certain circumstances. It's, you, you cannot predict or protect against everything, right? but you do what you can um, and, and try to find that balance again, as I said, of being prepared for mm -hmm. an eventuality that you hope never actually transpires, right. but not letting that cloud your everyday thinking and be continually present. It's just... Again, I, I don't know how you could maintain that mindset and, right. and stay positive and, and stay joyful and stay happy. And at the end of the day, a science center, if it's to be anything, it should be, it should be inspiring, it should be joyful, it should right. be happy, it should be a place where people want to come mm -hmm. because it creates good memories for them. And, right. and the potential for that to change in an instant is, is hard to accept. Right. Um, but it is a reality and we have to prepare for that. Right. I'm, I'm hopeful that there will come a day that we don't really have to prepare for the types of things that we're seeing now. There will always be something. Right. Can't can't prevent everything. But right now it's almost like we're not even trying to prevent right. some basic things from happening. Right. There there are some obvious answers that are out there. We just don't want to wrestle with them. Right. So and so I, I want us to lean in since we own like social issues right now. Yeah. Um, Science is a is a is a like a melting pot of just like social issues. I mean, when you talk about science, whether it's um, conservation, you know, climate mm -hmm. change, uh, whether it's gender identity, yeah. um, feeding the public, feed, yeah, clean air, clean, clean water. Air. Yep, it's it's all it's it's all science, right? It is. <laughs> it's all science. Um, what is the Venture Science Center kind of social responsibility um, to community around that and have you all kind of responded from an educational level to kind of be on top of those things and make community aware um, about all these various science things that are yeah. happening in community yeah. um, and kind of being like 
doing what the Avengers Science Center is supposed to do, educate, impacting, right. right. making people aware and people can come learn. Yeah, we're well, it's a good question. And, and clearly there are some very large issues to tackle. Right. Um, there are some that become very political very quickly that, you know, you sometimes have to tiptoe right. at least into the conversation a little bit. Sometimes you just say, forget it, we're diving head first right. and you go in. Um, but it's, it's, it's an interesting climate sometimes to bring up a lot of these conversations because one would hope that presenting factual information to a member of the public, as long as it's you know, rationally thought out and well-explained and you know, it's not using so much jargon that the person can't relate to the language and so mm -hmm. forth, if you present it in the right way and you present factual information, one would hope that people will listen to that. But studies actually show often the opposite. The mm -hmm. more that you try to present people with an opposing viewpoint, right. with facts that prove them wrong, often the more they dig in. It's, it's a really wild phenomenon. Wow. So you have to think a lot about how you present some of the conversations. If you just come on with full force and say, you know, we're gonna sort of bully you over with the facts that prove that you're wrong, mm -hmm. you're almost never gonna get somebody on the other side of that dialogue to say, oh yeah, I guess, I guess you're right. I've been doing this wrong the whole time and I've, my, my whole sort of paradigm, my worldview is now shifting because of this conversation. I mean, in a perfect world that would happen, but right. if social media has you know, proven anything to us, there's, there's often a lack of a willingness to engage in dialogue, much less be receptive to the dialogue that's mm -hmm. happening. So that means we have to be really thoughtful in how we approach a lot of these conversations. So, um, and I'll, I'll give you two different scenarios in okay. terms of how we approach them. When it came to uh, COVID and helping people understand, you know, obviously the dangers and you know the the realities of mask wearing and mm -hmm. getting vaccinated and so forth, we took a pretty strong approach to that. We didn't sidestep the issue and try to soften it or you know see if everybody was willing to have a conversation about COVID and so forth. There's a reality that's out there in the world. Mm -hmm. We don't have time to try to get people to feel good about being ready to have a conversation and then actually have the conversation. Right. I mean, people were dying by the thousands and thousands every single day. So for us, we needed to do something as quickly as we possibly could and just present good information. And, and even if that meant that some people moved further away, if there were some that moved closer to that truth, that was, that was something that we took as a win. Right. And so we did a series of conversations with Dr. Jahangir and a number of other folks, particularly at Vanderbilt, both on the uh, infectious disease side and then also on the pediatric side. Um, Alex, of course, was the, uh, the COVID czar for Nashville and, um, and, and we just presented the factual information. You right. know, we weren't trying to make anyone feel a particular way about being wrong or whatnot. It was just, here's the information. Y'all right. need to listen to this. Right. And, and this is something that you need to take into your own value system and make some decisions based on that. So we, we went, I think, pretty hard at that topic because that was critical for us to do. And as a science center, interestingly enough, um, the public view of science centers as being truthful and non-biased and so forth is actually, it's pretty good. Okay. To the extent where we can be a pretty effective and sometimes a more effective voice for these dialogues than places that seem biased, like right. a public health department, right? right, or the government, or whatever it may be. There's right. a lot of trust that is built into science centers, and we take that very seriously. Um, but it is something that we also were able to kind of step back on and lean on that right. in that time where we were trying to get people just to listen to good factual information from the people who knew it best. 
So that's one approach. <clears throat> and then you've got environmental issues, you know, climate change, deforestation, and other, other sort of related elements around that. Um, again, very third rail topic for a lot of people. Right. If you start going up to people down on Broadway and say, hey, let's talk about climate change, 99% of them are gonna <laughs> run away from you. Um, it, it, you have to think about how you approach the conversation just to get people willing to listen and to that mm -hmm. point where they can you know, kind of feel comfortable and not judged in right. listening. And so this fall, we're going to do an exhibit uh, called Recycle Rainforest. Okay. And effectively what it really is, is it's a place where families, anybody can come and they can use recycled materials to create design a creature that may live in the rainforest. It may be oh. based on something that's real, right. or it may be something that comes purely out of their own imagination. But the idea is come into this space, be creative, and while you're here and you're creative and you're receptive to this idea of rainforest and mm -hmm. habitat, now maybe we can take you one step further and talk about habitat loss. Maybe we can talk to you about some of the environmental threats that exist out there in the world. And then if you're willing to go there with us, now we can bring that conversation down to the local level and mm. say some of the decisions you make on a daily basis here in Nashville have global implications, right? right? And so that's a way that we can sort of gently guide a dialogue right. into that space. Because at the end of the day, we're, we're a free choice learning institution. Right. You know, we're, we're an informal education space, as right. some of the dialogue means. And what that really means is not just it's not that we you know, wear shorts and tank tops all the time. So that's not the informal <laughs> side. The informal side is we don't have that formal structure that a school may have right. where we can compel people to come to our space, where we can compel them to go through a learning narrative. Right. We have to find other ways to attract them in because they don't have to be there. Right. And, and so that's where a lot of that, that, um, that nuance comes in in mm -hmm. terms of having a conversation with them and, and hopefully... For example, this fall, people will come out of the Recycle Rainforest experience not only having a great time, mm -hmm. being creative and building that skill set, right. but also starting to think, hey, you know, there, there are things that I do in my daily life right. that I can improve that ultimately make critters that are half a world away have a better life. Right. And, and those things matter to me right. and they impact my day to day. As a CEO and uh, president of Richard Science Center, um, especially around social uh, issues. And as a white man, um, it's a certain privilege. Um, Absolutely. Certain privilege. And, you know, with this kind of, I would say, uh, awakening probably since, you know, more specifically because of the George Floyd murder, um, you see a lot of uh, organizations, people in general just trying to see what they can do more of and, yep. and do some self-reflecting and, and learning and, and and see how they can relate that over to what they do, um, especially yeah. in leadership roles. Mm -hmm. um, what type of reflecting have you been able to do since you know since our society just really since twenty twenty George Floyd just really trying to figure out like there's there's issues that we need to address right. on every level yeah. uh, from a community, academia, organizational, institutional level. Um, what has been that process for you as an individual? And then how's that kind of been um, related over into your work and kind of what the Venture Science Center do, maybe training for staff and things like that? Yeah. Well, that's that's a huge question, too. There, there are a lot of different ways to dive into that. And, you know, as I start talking, if you want to yeah. no, dig we got, into we, any one particular thing. Yeah, yeah, thing, no, we got, we got time. We're good. We got time. Um, <laughs> 
you know, here, here's what I would say. You're, I, I agree with you 100% that there, there are a lot of elements of privilege that have put me in the seat that I'm in today. And, and I think the way that I look at that is you can, you can look at that power, mm-hmm. which is ultimately what it is, right? right? You can look at that power probably through a lot of different lenses, but right. I'll break it into two just to keep it simple. One is there's power that can be kept and there's power that can be shared. Mm. I believe that it's a power that can be shared and, and I have an obligation to share that. So for me, the position that I have there is about how can I empower my team right. and how can I bring more people from the community to include them in the conversation to give them some of the power that otherwise I, I might feel compelled to keep. Mm. Um, and, and that's been a lot of how I've run the organization since the day that I got there. So for example, when I arrived, you know, there was, there was a conversation between two people that would create the entire organizational budget and then it would be, here, Jerome, here's your budget. Right. Well, that doesn't give you a voice. Right. And it also doesn't value your experience. It doesn't value your expertise. It doesn't right. value your intellect as a person to be thoughtful about the, the world that you want to create. It also doesn't condone or convey trust, right? right? It, that, that's a broken model, right. in my view. And so for me, the way that I approach that conversation is, all right, Jerome, you know, this organization believes that you're the best person in that position to do the work that we're asking you to do. I, I generally am probably going to feel like the people that surround me are smarter than I am in their mm-hmm. particular areas, which uh, I actually really like that. Right. It makes me feel very comfortable <laughs> letting them go and do right. their thing, but also it, it minimizes my ability to micromanage them, you mm-hmm. know, to know that I feel comfortable that they're, they're smarter at their job than I am. Uh, but also it, it takes some of the power that otherwise would be sitting in my seat mm-hmm. and gives it to them. And honestly, that's, that's a very comforting feeling to me. Mm-hmm. Um, heaven forbid, gosh, you know, I mean, we went through COVID and all of that, if I thought that I had to be responsible for everything that got that organization yeah. through COVID, right. I, that's that's an overwhelming amount of weight to carry. Right? right. But knowing that the team was capable and smart and able to do this was was an extraordinarily comforting thing to me. So I, right. I believe that power is meant to be shared, that it is meant to be given to other people to help empower them right. to ultimately take my job. Right. Or, or take whatever job it is that they want right. because they've been given some ability. They've been given that, that step up, whatever mm-hmm. it may be, um, to, to improve themselves, improve their circumstance, and improve their condition. It's the same thing with um, you know, making sure that the kids in the community have access to our space. Right. I know equity and access is a, is a big thing. It's a huge thing for yeah. us, right? At the end of the day... Again, we can dive into this a lot, but um, at the end of the day, a lot of the topics that you mentioned earlier, you know, climate change, access to clean water, clean air, how we're going to feed everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Where are we going to put people? How are we going to move them around? You right. know, all of these big, huge questions that we're wrestling with at their roots are fundamentally, the solutions to those are fundamentally rooted in science and technology. Right. And, and if we don't solve some of those there are real consequences. People are going to get left out of the existence that they want to have right. in the time that they have on this planet, right? I mean, right. there are real consequences to not figuring out how to get access to clean air, to right. not figuring out how to get access to clean water. Right. These are equity issues that we've got to wrap our heads around. Mm-hmm. And again, rooted in science and technology. And so for me, the access and equity space 
it's, it's, a, it's a moral imperative. I believe everybody is entitled to education and the same type of education. But the other side of that is if we don't get as many brains thinking about these things, mm -hmm. so thinking about climate change, thinking about you know, how to improve quality of water and air and all of these other fundamental things, right. if we don't get as many people as possible on board with how to figure these out, we are delaying the solutions that eventually will be found. And every day we delay those solutions, there are real people who face consequences for that. And so that's what it really is all about. Right. Yes, it's a moral thing. And we can have that conversation all day long. But taking it out of a political or moral frame and right. putting it into a pragmatic frame, saying, look, let's just put as many brains around the table as we can to figure mm -hmm. these things out. That's how we're going to get there faster. And we're probably going to come up with better ideas. And we take that approach even on a small level. And that idea of bringing as many people, including as many people as we can, into what we do as mm -hmm. a science center is you see that play out through our exhibit design process. So we're, we're currently uh, in a, about a two-year-long process. We've just started it, and it's very exciting to create a, a new exhibit up on our second floor. Uh, right now, we've got BodyQuest, which is well-loved. It's been there right. for 20 years, and that will be replaced in 2024 with Health Sports and Human Performance. I certainly don't have all the good ideas for Health Sports and Human <laughs> Performance, right? Um, nor do I have the voices that right. the community should have in right. that. I mean, at the end of the day, the Science Center is a community space. It's not my space, right. right? It's theirs. And so what we do with our exhibit process is is we create a community input group and we look for the most diverse voices. You know, we look for, you know, social diversity, we look for economic diversity, we look for intellectual diversity, you know, people that have interests in different topic areas. And we bring them into a room and mm -hmm. they sit with us literally through a two-year-long process to help us come up with the best ideas that, that we can imagine inside that exhibit space. And it's, it's rewarding, it's the right thing to do, but it's also, um, it, it's kind of that same sense of you know, giving some of that power over to my staff mm -hmm. and letting them do their work. It's, right. it's, it's fun every now and again to step back and see them succeed and watch the center become a great science center because of the work that they're doing. And similarly, it's exciting to watch an exhibit become right. a great exhibit because we've welcomed mm -hmm. 25 voices from the community to, to have their say in terms of what should be there. How many people do y'all serve on, like, I guess on a, any given, like on a, on a non-pandemic type of On a, a non-pandemic. <laughs> well, type, and it's, yeah. it's a tricky question, too, because we've changed our operating hours. Okay. And so it's not a, quite an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Okay. My guess is this year we'll probably see somewhere between 250 and 300,000 people. Wow. Um, and our, our fiscal year ends June 30th, so. So what about in... 20 because you came on 2017 2017 yeah so i don't remember I, I will say 2019 the 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 sort of last big year before the pandemic right. before we changed our operating, operating hours and so forth was about 385 wow it's um, almost so, 400,000 people yeah and and even wow. that was underutilized there are still a lot of days where you know we could have had more people right. in the building one of the other underutilized spaces in my view is uh, with the schools right. i think there's a lot more work that we can do there I mean, some of that's just right. because I'm a firm believer in education and, right. and, and making sure that school kids have an opportunity to come to the Science Center. Right. Um, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's a big part of it. And speaking of which, and, and sort of along the same lines of access and equity, you know, one of the things that I love about the Science Center is that all Metro Nashville public school students and charter students within Davidson County have free access to the Science Center 
as field trips through their schools. Wow. Uh, and, and that's a condition of our lease. So that's, that's right. not something that we could change even if we wanted to. Right. You know? and, and that to me speaks to some good thinking back when, when the lease was created, but right. also just the importance that the Science Center has and, and how much value it can play in, mm-hmm. in that learning environment. So. Um, and I don't even know if I answered yeah, no, no, question. Yeah, there's, no. there's so many different pieces to this, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, as far as broadly speaking about inclusion, diversity, equity, and access, or right. idea as we frame it, we started talking about that, you know, years ago. Right. Again, when yeah. I came on board, and we invited the whole staff in to a staff meeting, and right. we said, okay, let's let's think about these ideas of inclusion, diversity, equity, right. and access. What do they mean? Yeah, well, yeah, I'm going to say, because right. what 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 is what does that mean, especially in the science realm? Um, yeah. I'm not familiar with the with the numbers, but in many, well, I know for like health, for example, I had uh, Dr. Uh, uh, James Hildreth on here, yeah, um, and he was talking about like like health, like any other thing, like the disparities of people that participate or affected by our black and brown folks, right? Yep. And so is that something do you all intentionally look at as well to say, hey, how can we involve more of the black and brown community yep. um, and having access uh, to this space, knowing that it's here, knowing that they are welcomed um, to either be a part of careers, um, educationally, those type of things. Yeah, it, yes, is the short okay. answer to that. And so I'll also break that into sort of two components. The first part is making them feel welcome coming in the doors and, mm-hmm. and helping them understand that the Science Center is a place where they belong. And then that second piece is once they're in the Science Center, helping them understand that, you know, historically, uh, folks from you know minority communities have not been um, equal participants in cultural institutions broadly. Right. You know, there was there was a huge bias there, um, and some of that still exists. And then you layer on top of that the world of science and technology, right. which also have significant historical issues in terms right. of inclusion and diversity. So there's a lot that needs to be corrected in that space. So when we think about welcoming kids from, you know, African-American and Hispanic communities and so forth, um, and, and Nashville is a thankfully very diverse place. It's about first helping them understand that the Science Center is a place where they belong. Mm-hmm. And then when they're there, and a lot of times this is very subtle, but it's presenting them with staff and images and people in the exhibits that are reflected in the exhibits who look like them, who share the same cultural background that right. they do, right? And and this is another reinforcement that they belong. Right. But it's also a way for kids, if, if you're trying to inspire them to become a scientist or an engineer, you want them to feel comfortable. You want them to be able to visualize themselves in that career in 10 and 15 and 20 years. Right. And if they don't see people who look like them in those careers, you're, you're negatively impacting the ability for a child to create a, a self-view right. of what they might eventually become. Right. And so whether it's using images in the galleries or bringing career professionals or hiring staff mm-hmm. who are reflective of all of the different communities in Nashville, again, that's that's part of the experience at the Science Center and it's right. part of helping them walk away feeling inspired. Right. Because if you can have great exhibits, you can have really, really, really wonderful stuff. But at the end of the day, if kids come in and they don't see themselves reflected there, if there are people that they can't relate to or identify with, mm-hmm. you've lost a huge opportunity to create a sense of, hey, I belong here, right. and, and I belong in the world of science and technology. Right. And so there's 
there's a lot of work still to be done, but there's a lot of work that we're doing to make sure that we don't miss that. And so, as so I want, I want, I want you to um, talk. I have to make this connection yeah. so people, so people know where the Adventure Science Center is and why what you're seeing is so important. Because you have Fort Nagley there, right. and then you have where um, you have the first free black neighborhood um, on Brass Street, right? Where, Bass Street. Bass, yeah. Bass yep. Street. Yep. Excuse me. B A S S Bass Street. And so, and that, and those, and those uh, African American laborers and soldiers built and defended uh, Fort Nagley, right? And so, where the Adventure Science Center is, is this history, right, of like African American folks and Black folks, right. um, here in Nashville. Right. Um, when it, when you, when you think about that, um, we talk about preservation, you know, at the beginning of this, and we had conversations before right. about preservation, preserving it. Right. And storytelling and what that means, what yeah. that means right. knowing that Bass Street is there, Fort Negley, the African American community that was there, what role do you see the Venture Science Center playing in preserving that history, that story, and, and just that access to for people to understand um, the history was there and, and making sure like it doesn't lose that with right. the growth of the city. Right. Uh, man, you are asking a lot of the big questions today, that I feel like <laughs> deep this conversation. Just, yeah, yeah no that's, we got we got time. We we got uh, to, we got we and I want you to not want you know I want you to take your time to unpack because we do have time and so it's no rush on my end. So yeah. um, well, I think first of all, the science center is very fortunate to be in that space. Mm -hmm. You know, thanks to an agreement that was originally uh, signed in 1967. Um, when the Science Center lived in a different part of Nashville and then it relocated over to uh, its current location in the early 70s. So we're extremely fortunate to be there. We're fortunate to have the relationship that we have with Metro Parks that owns or manages the property that, that we have access to. Um, and, and it's created, I think, a good opportunity for a public-private partnership and to illustrate that those types of relationships can function very, very well. It's not perfect, you know, there are certain things that I know that we can improve over time, but I think by and large we've got a good strong relationship and, and we love the folks at Parks. Um, they've been good neighbors, they've been good folks to work with, and, and I know that they support the Science Center. So that, that part has been great, but I, I think one of the missed opportunities the Science Center um, hasn't done in, in the time that it's been there is really participate in the storytelling of what was there before. And, and there's, there's a long history of that hill. Right. Certainly, I think, at least at the moment, one of the most important stories to really focus on is Fort Nagley's story, as well as the community, the Bass Street community, mm -hmm. that, that really sort of flowed from the, um, the laborers that were at Fort Nagley. So I think there's an obligation for the Science Center to participate in that storytelling. And right now, Metro Parks is going through a, a master planning process for Fort Negley, and that really encompasses the full site, including the parcels that we lease. And so there's been good dialogue on, good. on our side with Metro Parks planning in terms of, okay, if Metro Parks is thinking about this for their parcels, what can we do to where the hill feels like an integrated right. storytelling space? Um, and I, I think one of the most uh, kind of amazing and fortunate things is that this place of particular history, and and a lot of that history has been erased, physically erased. Right. Um, but the site has has some level of preservation to it. Right. It's not perfect that the buildings are gone. Right. Right. But the site 
is, is somewhat well preserved to the extent that you don't have all other developments built on top of it, right. like other parts of Nashville where the history is completely gone. Right. And you're never going to get that back. Um, the fact that this area is contained within a park space mm -hmm. and has the ability to be somewhat preserved is, is kind of amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that we, we do need to take advantage of. But I think that's where you really wade into a very difficult and complex conversation about what, what does that mean? You know, what does preservation mean? Does it mean you don't touch any part of the ground? Right. Or does it mean there are certain things that you can do on the ground or to the ground, carefully, respectfully, thoughtfully, right, with right. archaeology and so forth, guiding, guiding a lot of what can be done and where it can be done and so forth? Or is there something in between that? And, and it's, it's, it's challenging because there are so many people that have a vested interest in that space, the right. Science Center being one, Fort Negley, Parks, and then you've got friends groups that surround that, and then you've got people in the community. community yep. and, and I haven't talked to everybody, but, but just in the last couple of years going through a lot of the conversations around the site, one thing that really strikes me is, is how little agreement there is on the how mm -hmm. of the preservation work. Right. There's a lot of agreement on why and whether or not it should be preserved. Right. It's just a question of what does preservation mean? You know, is preservation really preservation of the stories? Right. Is it talking to the people that lived right. in that space before, you know, it was obliterated by the federal interstate program? Right. And and having those powerful firsthand narratives be right. really what um, maintains the legacy of the Bass Street community? Or is it maybe trying to rebuild some of right. the buildings that are no longer there, particularly the Bass Street Baptist Church. Should that serve as kind of an iconic piece that gets rebuilt on mm. that site so that there is a tangible, visible reminder right. of what used to be there? Um, and then you can go even further and say, well, so how do you tell that story? Right. At the end of the day, it's a story with a tremendous amount of tragedy and, right. and sadness around it. Um, and, and that can be consuming. Mm -hmm. But and this is my personal belief, I think we have to find a way for there to be some story of hope that comes out of that right. so that it doesn't become a place where people just become paralyzed with right. guilt or paralyzed with sadness or something. Right. Because, you know, those are, those are tremendously powerful emotions that mm -hmm. have the ability to stop progress right. and to stop creative thinking. And, um, and, and I think that's the big challenge that that we're all wrestling with right now is how do you entertain all of these really, really different voices in the right. conversation and find, find that pathway, no matter how narrow it may be, right. that says this is, this is what we're going to do with this space right. going forward. So. And I think that's, in a, in a larger picture, that's kind of what Nashville is going through. Right? Oh, for sure, yeah. You know, like what, what does preservation mean? What does it look like? And I think everybody is agreeing like yeah we need to preserve nashville right. in general but, but and, and i think part of it too is preserving whose story yeah right because mm -hmm. historically right that's been very very lopsided right and then also even within that it's if we decide that we are going to preserve you know the stories of the black community which of course we should then who is it that preserves those stories right right certainly shouldn't be people like me trying to tell that story right and and i think those are those are reckonings that the city has got to really embrace mm. before it's too late right right and that's gonna be that's i think we have you know we have the mayoral um race coming up next year and i think that should be a question for any 
any candidate that's running for mayor, like preservation and what does that mean? Right. And right. just and then calling out, right? There's still a context around that and around who's been affected um, about not preserving or how the city has grown. Um, and who it's benefiting. And who it's benefiting, right? Yep. And so um, good luck with that, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's what I would say, you know, and this sort of goes back to the beginning of the conversation. To me, that's that's the beauty of a program like Leadership Nashville, right? Is it brings a lot of the voices from all different walks in the community and starts to hopefully tackle some of these big conversations. Right. And and at some point, you just have to pop a bubble. Right. There are certain things that you, you just, you don't have the time and the luxury to dance around. You, right. you just have to dive in and have a very uncomfortable conversation right. and, and be able to kind of put some ego aside, be able to put some of your own personal thoughts aside and say, you know, maybe maybe I'm thinking about this in the wrong way, right. and, and that's that's something that for me over the last couple of years, particularly as it's related to our site, has been a continual process of my thought cycle. Is what am what am I not hearing? What am I not? Mm -hmm. um, what blind spots? What blind spots do, do I have? have? I mean, right. we, we all have biases, all, yeah, right? Exactly. And, and I know that I've got those, mm -hmm. and and it's a continual process to check those biases and to check those sort of ingrained thought processes to think, maybe I'm thinking about this in the wrong way. And, and you know, one of the things that I will say about the, um, the site that we have and some of the work that we've been going on there, I tend to be a fairly pragmatic person. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like if, if the science and the data tell me X, then that's generally the way my thinking is going to go. Um, but not everything can be decided that way. Right. You know, there, there is emotion, there is passion, right. and those are good things. Mm -hmm. I think we have to be sometimes careful as to whether the emotion and the passion carry the conversation, and that's the reason we make certain decisions. Right, of course. Right? There's, there's got to be balance there, right? right? right. Um, and, and I think, for me, I tend to skew heavily towards, well, the science, the data tell me this thing, so this should be what we do. Right. And maybe not listening to the emotional side as much as, as I need to mm -hmm. sometimes, and that's... A true scientist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's a tricky thing yeah. because you know the world the world is not black and white. Right. right. The world exactly. is not binary. It's not this or that. Right. Um, and and the other thing that I will say too is that the world is not a zero sum game. Mm -hmm. Right. Someone's happiness and joy doesn't take away from someone else's happiness. I I, right. I tend to believe that there's an infinite pie of happiness that we can just make bigger. Maybe a infinite deep dish pizza <laughs> right. of happiness that we can just make bigger and who doesn't like bigger pizza right like if you don't like bigger pizza like i'm you, you must be a robot you can't yeah, be human yeah. like, i just don't yeah. <laughs> I, that, I, I agree with you there that is black and white that like, is black and white like pizza, pizza like yeah, yeah, yeah. you're not from I, here I you're not you're, i don't know how to relate where, to that. Where, that's where the world i don't want to be in right exactly well not now i really i really appreciate that that thoughtfulness steve and just that understanding you know and we all learning and growing as human beings or should be. Um, but that's why these type of dialogues, I feel are so important um, yeah, to understand perspective um, and continue to have these. And then they're, they're gonna be uncomfortable sometimes, right? But yeah. leaning into that, um, the uncomfortability and just doing that self work too. Right. And, and understanding your own implicit biases and and your thoughts about things are really doing that self work. Right. So you can come into other spaces with other people just being better, right. you know, and hopefully everybody else in that space is doing the same thing. Right. And I think that's how we make progress as a society, as a culture, as a community, um, to, to make the best decisions that we know um, 
10, 20, 30 years out, we're going to say, okay, we made the right decision here. Right, right. You know? I agree. So I, I had a little league coach when I was a kid, um, Sammy Joseph Jr. He was, <laughs> Sammy Joseph Jr. Sammy that, Joseph that's Jr. That's a baseball yeah, this is, and name this is for sure. Growing up in Austin, um, and 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 he he taught me a lot, certainly around baseball and other things. But I, I will never forget, and this is a line that I probably heard when I was ten years old, and it's stuck with me ever since. Um, was I will rarely fault you for the physical mistake. You know, you're going to drop a fly ball. You know, you're mm -hmm. gonna you're gonna you know. Make, miss a a make a base ball, running yeah. error, miss a ground ball. You're, you're going to do that. You're going to strike out, right? Where, where he will start to get more aggressive and where he will start to fault you more is when you make the mental mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. If you're just not paying attention, if you're not thinking through the game, if you're not mentally present in that space, that, that's where he's going to call you out. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll never forget that. And I thought, and I still do, I think that's, that's a very powerful lesson to me. You know, especially, you know, again, taking it into a leadership position, I'm going to make wrong decisions. Right. It's going to happen. Right. But if I'm making the wrong decisions with the best intent and, and acknowledging that when I make that wrong decision, I can pivot and go the other direction mm -hmm. and that I'm going to learn from those mistakes, then I feel good. I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm not perfect, right? We, we mm -hmm. aren't. Um, and, and that, that's something that I take into this position and, and I share with my team, like, we're all going to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make errors as it comes to dealing with the site story, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm trying to continually learn right. and improve in that space. And I'm trying to be at least very thoughtful about how we approach some of these kinds of things. And, and, and this is where I think there's this, this beautiful word in the English language called grace, mm. right? And, and yeah. it's the ability for each person to give each other some grace, some grace yeah. in particularly in these difficult conversations yeah. and, 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 and acknowledging we aren't always going to get it right. We aren't even going to see eye to eye, right. um, but we've got to give each other some grace, grace. In, in, in the sense that we can get better. We can improve right. and, and, and that the human condition will get better. Wow. So, well, I think we ended there, Steve. I don't know. How I was, <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was, that was, the, that was the great ending right there. But, um, no, but I, I want to I want to give you an opportunity do, before we before we actually do um, close out to share anything else um, that we might then talk about and cover, but just around the Venture Science Center. Um, I know. Come visit. You know, come, come, come visit. <laughs> There's a lot of great stuff yeah. going on, and I, I I will say you know my my last sort of parting thought is you know I'm I'm just incredibly proud of our team uh, that that we've you know kind of come through this very very difficult time right. you know, over the last couple of years in a position where now we can make some of the changes that this community deserves. I mean, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the community, Nashville is becoming a, a global city and, right. and great cities have great science museums. And so we're, we're making a lot of progress in that direction. Um, and, and I'm glad that we're diving into some of these conversations yeah. and that we're welcoming. I mean, the fact that we are talking to you tells right. me we're moving in the right direction, right? right? I mean, that's, that's a great thing for me. Um, and that you think maybe we have something of value to share that tells me we're doing something right. Yeah. And that's particularly rewarding. So yeah. I, man, I'm just, I'm grateful to be here. No, I'm no, no, to be no, on your show. no, I appreciate your availability. And you know, when I go into things, I started thinking about things like, what did I miss out on when I was younger? Right. Or what didn't I, why wasn't I included or hmm. why didn't my parents take me there? Or why didn't I just know more about this growing yeah, up? Yeah. And those are the things that I tend to now like intentionally try to like 
figure out and like talk to those people that are in those spaces. Like, hey, like Avengers Science is here. I think I, I, I can't remember the last time I've been here, but I want to know more about what's going on because yeah. like people that look like me are like I didn't. We we're not here or we're not going there yep. or we don't feel like it's available. Right. And so what 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 role can I play? And getting more people there, more people of color, more black folks there, and just more community there. Like, hey, this is a space that, like, hey, it's here. And, like, they have a great CEO and president. They give you free tickets every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> like, they, they do do that. Like, they they, they rarely say no, um, especially if you as a field trip or a group or a community. And so that's what I've been just trying to attack just personally. Like, spaces that I feel like I just, I didn't see myself in. Yeah. And so, like, intentionally going to those spaces now and saying, hey, like, you know, what's going on? You yeah. know, like, what can I do? Like, I, I can, be, you know, get more people in here that look a little different than, than the people that are normally in here. Yeah. And so I appreciate your effort in doing that and talking to me and just, you know, just, you know, just being a good person, you know, and really being intentional um, about where the Adventure Science Center is, is, is headed, uh, having those tough conversations about the site. Um, and just embracing all of that, and just being yeah. open, though, and available, because yeah. you you don't have to be, <laughs> or you couldn't you couldn't be, you know, yeah. right? You could be like, hey, well, we doing this, and that's that. Like that's my statement. That's it. So I really appreciate you, yeah. um, and I hope you know there's more more folks that are in leadership positions like yourself that are continuously having these conversations personally within themselves and reflecting growing amongst their team, yeah. but just with the community. So thanks, Steve. Yeah, you're very welcome. And and again, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people in this community that are willing to to dive into this dialogue. It's one of the yeah. things that I love about Nashville. It's, yeah. um, you know, by and large, I think it's a very approachable city. I, yeah. I think you can talk to just about anybody here right. yeah. um, and, and meet them at a very genuine level. And I, yeah. I've appreciated that. So, Well, Steve, got to bring you back. Yeah, man. I can't wait to come back to the Adventure Science Center. For well, sure. you know what you can do is have us have us back in a little bit, and then you know ask us how we're doing. Yeah, I mean, because that's something that we need too. Is we yeah. need we need that accountability. We need people saying, "All right, this is what okay. you said last time yeah. you were on this show." <laughs> oh, I'm How's pretty it going? sure. I'm pretty sure so, when they listen to this, they will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure your leadership class. I'm like, see, we heard you say this. Now, how's that? Going? Yeah. How's yeah. how's that going? So we're gonna um, check up on that. Yeah, yeah, and then tell all your 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 the newfound leadership fellows, hey, come on, deep dish. Yep, you know, come have a conversation. I will. So thanks, Steve. Yeah, man. Till next thanks, time. Bro. Yeah.